You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. As we jump into 1 Corinthians, you know, when you start a new book of the Bible, you always want to sort of give some background to it, and you want to spend some time, you know, helping people understand the context of where it was written, what was going on historically, what was going on politically. We'll do some of that stuff on Wednesday night, so you can join us at 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights for our Through the Bible study. But I, I wanted to start out just talking about why I'm so excited about the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter that Paul writes to the church. And that's something for you to understand, is that all throughout the New Testament, really what we're calling books are letters that were written to various churches. So there was a city called Corinth, and the Apostle Paul, who just walked us through salvation and our need for Jesus all through the book of Romans and all the deep theology that he taught us in, in Romans, Paul is the one who actually established, who started the church at Corinth. He was the one who was preaching the gospel to people, and he started this church. Now, I love the letter to the Corinthian church. This, this book, 1 Corinthians, even in the first 10 verses, I just absolutely fall in love with it. And let's read the first 10 verses, and I'll tell you why I love the first 10 verses, especially of the letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In the first ten verses of his letter to this church at Corinth, he mentions Jesus eleven times. I love the book of 1 Corinthians. One of the taglines that we've sort of created or that has sort of just become a thing for us as, as, as we've sort of sought to say, Lord, what do you want us to be as the church? How do you want us to function together? What are we supposed to be doing? All those things. It's this, that Jesus is everything to us. That's sort of just become the, the, the line. That's what I end my emails with. That's sort of what our podcast thing is, is, that, is Jesus is everything. So for us at The Way, this gathering of believers, Jesus is everything. And for us, 1 Corinthians is about as good of an example of what we mean when we say Jesus is everything as anything else in the Bible. We are going to encounter Jesus at every step of the way as the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. Now, like I said, the, the background, the history, all the, the circumstances as to why he wrote it, there's a lot there. and We'll cover that stuff on Wednesday night, and so I hope you join us for that. 
Suffice it to say, Paul is writing a letter back to the Corinthian church. He has received a communication or a letter of some kind, and there have been questions that he has been asked about a whole bunch of things going on in the church at Corinth, and this letter back to the church is his answer for a lot of those things. Now, as well as these answers that Paul gives back to the church, which is going to just, uh, it's going to be what we study through and is going to teach us a lot about how we're supposed to function as a church, there's also a lot of Paul's personal history at work in the writing of this letter. And it's really cool to see the connections between Paul and, and his own salvation, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, his own discipleship and learning and training, and then going out on his missional journeys that, that the Lord had sent him on, establishing churches as he went. And, and then the outworking of that, meaning the, the development of these churches and the growth of these churches, it's neat to see how God connects the dots because of one person's faithfulness. And I think that's incredibly important. Paul will say over and over again, it's not about him and his ministry. It's not about the fact that, you know, oh, I'm so special. In fact, Paul would push against that and go, I'm nothing. I'm just a man. And I, even throughout chapter one, he'll go, listen, I don't even know who I baptized. I know I baptized a couple of you guys. The rest of them, I don't know anything about that. I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach. But Paul wants to diminish his role in that. And yet what we get to be encouraged by and see is the Lord working through one person's faithfulness and obedience to him and how much the, the gospel can spread simply by one person just going, yeah, Lord, I'll just do what you say. So to give you just, just a touch of background, just a little bit of an understanding of what's going on here. Corinth was, at that time, a major city. It was an important city. It was a famous city. And it's often compared by certain scholars, as you read about it historically, it's been compared culturally to modern-day Southern California. Corinth, even back then, in that day and age, was compared to modern-day Southern California. My grandfather was an immigrant from Russia. He came over in 1951, and uh, he had a... He, they, they lived in the Central Valley, like Fresno area, and they were farmers and stuff. And then they would have to go to Los Angeles for family gatherings and church things. And my grandfather had this saying that I'll never forget when I was a kid. He said, you could blow up Southern California for all he cared and, and let it just fall off into the ocean. And I'd be okay with that except for San Diego. I really like San Diego and Carlsbad. Like, if you could save that little spot there and just have it for me and my family, I'd be good with that. Just for me, though. Nobody else. <laughs> But he said you could blow up Southern California for all he cared. And listen, when you start to, to associate a specific place with a specific part of the culture, this is what you get when you think about Corinth. Other commentators have said that it's a, it was a combination of New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all rolled into one, if you could imagine that. It was very wealthy. It was a center of trade. It was well-known. There were famous uh, temples there and, and, and pagan centers of worship there. It was extremely liberal. It was loose in regard to morality. It was free in regard to behavior. We could talk at length about the temple worship of Aphrodite, goddess of sensuality and sexuality and all the sexual perversions that took place there. When you start to, to process that stuff and go, oh, the good old days, 
There were no good old days, ever. The world has always been broken and perverted, and there have been pockets of just absolute, just moral decay, cultural despondency. Like, the world has always been broken. There are no good old days. I mean, this is about as old as you can get, right? A couple thousand years ago. And they're equating the culture of that day and age in that city to what's going on today in our world with the same type of, of moral disregard and the types of behaviors that are just, just filthy and, and perverted. But I want you to take notice of something. As we understand that culturally about the city of Corinth, that in the midst of that type of moral decay and, and, and that just perverted behavior, all those things, in the midst of that, take note of this, is the church. The church is sitting in the middle of this city. There are people here in Corinth who are actively seeking after the Lord, actively pursuing discipleship to Jesus, actively sharing the gospel. The church is in the midst of this city of moral decay. I want you to take note of Acts chapter 18 briefly. This is when the church at Corinth actually was formed, or the beginning of it. I'll read to you out of Acts chapter 18. This is about the Apostle Paul, after his conversion in his missionary journeys, here in the city of Corinth. So unlike the book of Romans, where Paul had not met with that church yet, had not been to Rome, but was writing this, this theological treatise, Paul knew Corinth well. He knew the people who were there. He was the, the reason why that church existed. Well, God was the reason, of course, but it was through the Apostle Paul that that church was founded. So listen to Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. I love that phrase. He was occupied with the word. He was busy with the word of God. That's a great phrase. He was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, and from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Acts chapter 18, in that first several verses, lays out for us some incredibly important details about the Apostle Paul and his ministry at Corinth. Take note of several things, three things in particular that, that we see in that section of scripture that we just read. 
Corinth is where Paul developed several relationships that proved to be lifelong partnerships in ministry. It's where he developed that relationship with Priscilla and Aquila. We heard about them in our study through Romans. Priscilla and Aquila, these faithful, well-known people who had a church in their house, they were doing that work of ministry alongside the Apostle Paul. Paul developed that relationship there at Corinth. Can I tell you how important it is to have those types of relationships with people that you sort of just are like-minded with and have the same heart with and the Lord just sort of seems to stick you together and you partner with those people and you just walk through life with those people doing the work of ministry. That's an incredibly important relationship to have and we see the Apostle Paul having that type of relationship here in the midst of this city that is dark and broken and lost. The reality is, is that you can't do it alone. There's no such thing as a maverick Christian. There's no way that you can faithfully walk with the Lord just by saying, it's just going to be me. I'm just going to do it by myself. You have to have people around you. We are called in the word, specifically in the book of Hebrews, to be people who are in fellowship with one another. Now, fellowship is hard with one another. That's why Paul's going to spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians talking about unity, talking about being of the same mind and the same heart. But it's important to see that the Apostle Paul was not a one-man show. He, it wasn't just him against the world. He had these partnerships that were these deep relationships. That's one of the things we see there in Acts chapter 18. The second is this. Acts chapter 18 shows us that at Corinth is where Paul received his true calling to ministry. Paul, being a Jew, converted to a follower of Jesus, a part of the way, went and reasoned with both Jews and Gentiles. Now, he was a good Jewish boy. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew Jewish tradition and the law. And so, of course, he had a heart. We read that in Romans chapter 9 and 10, 9 specifically, that he had this heart for the Jews. He said, if it were up to me, I would trade places with the nation of Israel that they would believe and that I would be cut off so that they could be saved. That's how much he loved his own kinsmen, his own people, that he wanted them to believe in Jesus. But here they rejected him, and they reviled him. And so he did the, the cultural, dramatic Jewish thing where he shook out his garments. He said, your blood is on your own head. I will now go to the Gentiles. This was Paul's true calling. As we go through the rest of the New Testament, we understand this is what God called the Apostle Paul to do, to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, out to people who hadn't heard of him. He went and was the pioneer of the gospel in places that had never heard about Jesus Christ. He received his true calling in his ministry there at Corinth in the middle of this moral decay. Thirdly and finally there in Acts chapter 18, there at Corinth is where Paul was spoken to by the Lord specifically. God spoke to the Apostle Paul and proved himself in the preaching of the gospel, meaning that as Paul preached, God saved people. He increased his kingdom. And this is what God told the Apostle Paul. Again, Rome, uh, Acts 18, verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. That's a powerful statement, and I'll just share this from a very, very personal perspective. That, that verse in and of itself, Romans, uh, pardon me, Acts 18, 
verse 9. I've got that circled in a Bible of mine very, very specifically with a date and a time on it. Because it is the reason why we came back to Springfield and Eugene, that scripture in particular. The Lord spoke that to my heart. And, and within that, reading what the scripture said there, God placed two families on my heart very specifically to come back to this area and, and to minister the gospel, to preach, to teach, all those things. But very specifically, there's two families that God placed on my heart to say, I have people in this city and I want you to go and tell them about Jesus. It's still a work in progress. I don't have a testimony yet of radical salvation in those lives. But what I can say is that we are in their lives and we are working toward that and watching God do great things in that area. But when God speaks to you in this way, as he did to the Apostle Paul, and just confirms things, says, here, this is what I want you to do, and here's why. Because I have a purpose and I have a plan. Man, it's one of those things that could steady us, steal us, give us all of the reason and motivation we might ever need to step into a place that on its own looks dark, looks broken, and looks like a place that we might not want to go otherwise. We as Christians are, are guilty, just as anybody is, of looking out for our best interest, looking out for our own comfort, looking out for the thing that's going to be easiest for us to achieve. And yet, I'm reminded again and again and again that Jesus told his disciples to take up their cross and follow after him. Taking up a cross requires sacrifice. When Jesus took up his cross, it meant that he laid his life down completely. The Apostle Paul did the same thing in responding to this calling of going to the city of Corinth and preaching the gospel. Now, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not only do we see the church in the midst of this urban, morally decayed, sinful area, as we look and, and learn about the condition and the state of the church and why Paul is writing this letter back to them, we see a contrast take place. There is so much in 1 Corinthians, as it's reported about the church there, that is unflattering. As we go through the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see things that are attributed to the church that might cause us to think, are they even saved? Like, are these, how can these people be the church at Corinth? We're going to see things like morality problems. There's going to be some gross uh, issues with morality that Paul has to answer and address. There are doctrinal arguments taking place that Paul has to set them right on and go, no, you're thinking about Jesus incorrectly altogether. There are church governance issues. Some people saying, we're this faction or we follow this person. And some follow, we follow this guy and we follow that guy. There's this infighting going on in the church about who's in charge. Apparently, the church at Corinth was incredibly gifted by the Holy Spirit. We've talked about giftings in the Holy Spirit it would appear that a great many of the gifts were present in abundance in Corinth, but Paul has to talk to them about abusing and misusing those gifts and being arrogant about the gifts that the Holy Spirit had given them. 
There were problems with church service, meaning people showing up and just waiting to be served, not participating in the actual service of the church. There were problems with, with authority in terms of listening to the leaders. Paul's own authority was questioned time and time again. He has to assert himself as an apostle, the one sent by God to speak to you. All of these things, as we read through the letter to 1 Corinthians, come up in such a way that it might cause us to look at it and go, were they, <laughs> were they even Christians? How could all those things be present? and them still be considered Christians. Well, here's what Paul says in the very beginning of the letter. Remember how he addresses them. He says, to the church, in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, watch this, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul addresses the church, this church, that has all of these issues that he's going to have to answer and teach to and correct them on, Paul calls them saints. They are a part of the body of Christ, and they are in agreement with everyone else, wherever they might be, as long as they call upon the name of Jesus. They are saints. And so notice the contrast at work here. You have the church, the church of God, which is a good thing. Amen? The church is a good thing. You have the church of God in Corinth, a place that is wicked and bad and broken. And, and when we consider the tension between those two things, the church and the city, we really begin to understand the purpose of the letter of 1 Corinthians. And the bottom line in understanding it is this question. You can mark this down and use this as part of our guide as we walk through studying this. Is the church influencing the city or is the city influencing the church? That's the great question to ask as we walk through this. And as Paul's having to answer these questions and teach to these issues that are plaguing the church, that would cause perhaps some of us to even be a little bit judgmental and go, how are you guys even allowed to be at church with those issues being present? This is the question that we have to ask ourselves as well. Is the church, the body of Christ, are we having an impact and an influence on the culture around us or are we allowing the culture to influence us and change who we're supposed to be? And one of the things, obviously, like I said, that I love about this letter to the church at Corinth is how much Jesus there is, even in just that first 10 verses. How much Jesus is present in Paul's arguments. He's going he's gonna to restate the gospel multiple times. He's going to, again, talk about how our salvation is in Jesus alone, not through anything else that we might do. But what, what I love about 1 Corinthians as well is that in its transparency and its honesty about the state of the church, it affirms anyone who might be a little bit nervous about coming to church. Because oftentimes people, you invite someone to church, and they might think, they might even say to you, yeah, I, I, I don't feel like I should actually be the one going to church. Sometimes people will think that if they come to church knowing that they're broken or sinful or that they're far away from the Lord, they might feel like perhaps they might mess up 
all the good little godly church people by showing up, right? There's this old saying, right? Nervous as a prostitute in church, right? It's a, it's a saying, really, it is, it is. But I think a lot of people sort of resonate with that. They go, if I go to church, God might actually strike me dead. Like there might actually be a lightning bolt that comes down from the sky and takes me out. As if somehow the church gathering is different than any other place on earth. Listen, if God wanted to, he could strike you dead at any point in any place. In fact, there's sometimes I wish he would do that more often. What I love about that transparency, though, about the church at Corinth and how broken it was and how messed up it was, this church that Paul himself started, he's the one who, who came and preached the gospel and started this church. The reality is, is that the church was messed up. All that to say, if you're messed up, if you feel like it's a struggle to just walk in the doors and you're fighting that sense of like, man, I know I should go to church. I know it's a good thing, but I just feel like I'm so far away from where I should be. Or if you're inviting someone to church and that's their answer is, nah, I'm too messed up to go to church. God doesn't want someone like me dirtying up his holy little gathering of Christians. Listen, if you're messed up, if the people that you're ministering to in your life are messed up, 1 Corinthians is the book that tells us that church is the place that you're supposed to be if you're messed up. If you're messed up, there's no better place to be than at church. Take a look at verse 18, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 18. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this uh, for the rest of our time here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Again, verse 18, for the word of cross is for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. With all that background, with all that knowledge that says, listen, the, the church at Corinth was messed up. And there's a transparency about that. There's Obviously, that's what's driving Paul's letter to them is to answer back these issues. Listen, if that's not enough motivation for us to say, hey, listen, if you're messed up, church is the place to be. It's going to be the place where you're going to receive answers to help you figure out how to not be so messed up, specifically in Jesus Christ. But with all that said, Paul acknowledges something here in verse 18 that's incredibly important for us to internalize. It, 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 when, we, when we understand this truth, it will help us, hopefully, find our grounding in the mission that we've been called to fulfill as disciples of Jesus. I've been a Christian for a long time. I, I believed upon Jesus for salvation when I was six years old with a genuine, true understanding of the fact that if I didn't believe in Jesus, that I was going to be separated from God for a long time, for eternity. And so I believed upon Jesus when I was six years old. Throughout the rest of my life, I can say that there have been seasons of time 
where I have had boldness in the Lord, where I have felt grounded and secure in my faith and, and didn't really care what anybody thought about that and really was seeking after the Lord. But I can also say that there have been distinct seasons of my life where I've like done what the Bible says you're not supposed to do. I've sort of hid my light under a basket. I've sort of pushed away from the association with the church or with Christianity for whatever reason, embarrassment, fear, a desire to pursue sin and be lazy in my obedience to Christ, whatever that, that might be. There have been seasons when I've been unsteady in my faith. I think what Paul says here in verse 18 is one of those scriptures that if we can internalize it, really grab onto it, it helps to steady us in our faith. This is what he says. For the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There are going to be people who when you invite them to come to church, when you share your faith and you say, I just believe in Jesus, I'm a Jesus person, I believe what the Bible says is real and true, you have to understand there are going to be people, perhaps a lot of people, who think that you're foolish. And they're going to treat you as such. They're going to put you in a position of perhaps ridiculing you, making fun of you, excluding you from activities and social relationships. It may even happen within families where when you take a stand for Jesus and say, no, I believe in the cross of Christ that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose from the grave promising me eternal life. Even within families, that causes separation and division. And yet Jesus in his teachings would say, hey, you may have to bear that cross. You may have to sacrifice those relationships to be steadfast in your walk with me. I think we have to understand that there are points in time in our walk with the Lord where it may be a struggle to stand fast for the word of the cross because of how people treat us like fools, like we're idiots, like somehow we're, we're under some grand delusion. Paul says very specifically, to those who are perishing, the word of the cross is foolishness. What does it mean to those who are perishing? To those who have not been spiritually reborn born again. Those who haven't been renewed from the inside out, filled with the Holy Spirit. Not being filled with the Holy Spirit, not being renewed. They are walking down a path heading toward destruction, the Bible would say. They are perishing actively if they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught us in John 16, 13, that he had to go away so that God could send the Comforter, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit to reside with us, in us, as his followers. And he said that when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all the truth. Everything that the Holy Spirit is convicting us of, leading us toward, speaking to us, reminding us of Jesus' words, is so that we would understand the truth, the necessity of our salvation. If someone doesn't have the Holy Spirit doing that work in them, they may look at us and go, you are a fool. You're foolish. But what it says about them, and this should cause us 
to have the same type of heart that the apostles had. If we recognize that someone is perishing, our desire should be all the more to share with them the truth of Jesus Christ. Part of the reason that people may look at us as foolish because of this this association with Jesus, this word of the cross that we proclaim, part of the reason that people look at us foolishly in regard to our faith is that people want to know that what we claim is not just real, but they want us to prove it. They want to know if what we believe is true. There's a difference between things being real and being true. Something can be real. You can have an experience that is real to you. But it may not be true according to God's standard of holiness. We were talking about it this morning briefly. If you just look through the book of Job, how many chapters in the book of Job? 53, something like a lot of chapters in the book of Job. And a lot of time with Job's friends speaking to him tons and tons of words, talking about his sin and and how, why bad things have happened to him. And, And they're just pontificating for pages and pages and pages until the very end of the book of Job, where God goes, okay, now I'm gonna speak. All of you guys shut up. You have no clue what you're talking about. Which is why you can't go to the book of Job and take something that Eliphaz or Bildad says and go, oh, I'm gonna build a doctrine around what these guys were telling Job. Why? It was real. They were sitting there with him. They saw what Job went through and they were giving their best effort to share some wisdom or knowledge with him. And yet God comes in and goes, nope, they're all wrong. They have no clue what they're talking about. They're not true in regard to my word. You can find examples of that all through scripture. You can find examples of it even in the church today. Someone could have an experience of some kind. It could be a very real experience. It could even be a spiritual experience of some kind. But it may not match up with, it may not hold up under the scrutiny of the scripture, number one, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or the testimony of Jesus, meaning the teaching of what he called us to as his disciples. And so too often, what we see now in our culture, what's happening right now, and and it's it's such a tragedy, is we are seeing a bunch of people who had claimed to be Christians going through what's called a deconstruction process. Christians who are deconstructing their faith. They may have been someone who was a youth leader or a worship leader or even a pastor, and they're now coming out in, in the media and going, I now am no longer a Christian. I don't believe what I used to believe. And the books that I wrote, forget about that. And the sermons that I preached, forget about those. And they begin to redefine who they are in accordance with current worldly standards. And the problem with that is that that they may have had an experience at some point that they would qualify as real in regard to the church or Jesus even. But they end up not believing that the scripture and the church as God has called us to be is true because of a lack of faith 
in who Jesus is. Rather, these people who are deconstructing their faith, they're believing in the experience or are comparing the claims of Jesus and the Bible versus their own thoughts or their own reasoning in regard to the logic of the world compared to the God of the Bible. And these deconstruction stories are, are coming left and right at us in the culture if, you, if you're looking for those things and if you're aware of those things. And they're incredibly sad. But what they highlight and show is that someone can have a real experience but not understand that what they're experiencing is true. And that's why it's for, important for us as Christians to be able to know the truth of what we believe. And, and the truth of what we believe, who Jesus is, his death and his resurrection, and the fact that it's true universally, that no matter where you are, the way of Jesus is cross-cultural. It's true no matter who you are or where you are in the world. The cross of Christ is the power of God to those who are being saved, to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. Now, I gave you this little piece of paper on your seat, and you can take a look at that. I'm going to read it out loud here in just a moment. But I wanted to give this to you and hand it to you and and have you be able to take that and just... Look at it, think about it, study it if you need to, and use it as a a resource if necessary. In this regard, in sharing your faith, people are going to ask you, why do you believe? Don't you know that the Bible's full of errors? Don't you know that the Bible has contradictions in it? The first answer to give to someone who wants to challenge you in your faith as you're sharing Jesus with them, the very first thing you can say is this, show me. When someone says, don't you know the Bible has all kinds of errors in it? Very simply just go, oh, you've read the Bible as well. Please show me what those errors are. Don't you know the Bible contradicts itself? Show me. Show me where where the contradictions are in Scripture. That's the first That's the first assault that you can make against those types of claims. But when someone asks the question, why do you believe? What what is it that causes you to think that this stuff is true? This statement is a well-formed and well-thought-out but concise answer that you and I can give. Read through it with me. It says, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of verifiable historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies, and they claim to be divine rather than human in origin. This statement, if you take it and break it down, we could do a whole, you could do a whole seminar on this little statement here in terms of apologetics, being able to answer people uh, the reasons why we believe our faith to not just be blind faith, but faith that is based on fact and reality and historically verifiable events. The resurrection of Jesus and the number of people who witnessed that and were able to report that is astounding. Well, you don't have the original Bible and the original text. The, The writings of the early church fathers alone could reconstruct 
the entire Bible in the way that we hold it in our hands today. The number of fragments of manuscript copies and transcripts that are available outnumber any other book of antiquity by the thousands. There is so much reliable evidence that tells us that what we hold in our hands and what it represents historically is true. It's not just real. It's not just an experience that we're having and some mass delusion that we found 50 other people who just happened to agree that we had this same spiritual experience together. It's true. And this statement in and of itself can be one of those things that might resource you. It might help you to pursue knowledge in these things and be able to say, no, listen, the thing that I believe, the Bible and what it says about who Jesus is, it's, it's not just real. It's not just an experience I'm having. It's true. Another simple way that this can be said, apart from the academia of this statement and knowing eyewitness accounts and the number of manuscripts and all those kinds of things, but if someone just asks you, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in the Bible? One of the simplest ways to answer that is, this, is just this. I believe in Jesus and what the Bible says because it's the best explanation of the world around us. As simple as that. There is no other system of belief. There is no other religious teaching that gives an explanation of the way that the world actually is and the relationships that we engage in in the world better than what the Bible explains for us. Now, 1 Corinthians was written for a multitude of reasons. Paul is writing this letter to them to answer a lot of these doctrinal issues, these behavior problems, all the things that are going on. But included in all of those things is a confirmation that what we've experienced in our salvation is not only real, but it's also true according to God's kingdom, God's holiness, God's standard. And as we read through, we're going to be confirmed in several things. Take note of this. As we read through the book of 1 Corinthians, we are going to confirm our individual calling, which is our salvation. God is going to confirm that through the writings of the Apostle Paul, our individual calling, which is our salvation. We're also going to have confirmed for us our missional calling, which is to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the world. Our missional calling. And thirdly, we are going to have confirmed for us our congregational calling, meaning the gathering of the church together. We're going to have confirmed what our purpose is when we gather together, which is discipleship of one another toward Jesus. And in all of those things, it will be confirmed in the power of the gospel. When I sit and, and prepare and study what we're going to teach through on, on Wednesdays and Sundays specifically, it's funny how you, how you can go back and read through the history of the church and watch trends take place. And I'm only 40 years old, but even in that time, having been in church since I was a little kid, you can watch trends kind of come and go throughout the church. And one of the trends that, that I think is not a, good, not a good trend that took place within my lifetime, within the last 15 years or so, is that there's been a move away from issuing altar calls. I think there was a time where, where the whole thing of, of like, 
Okay, everybody bow your head, close your eyes. This is a private moment between people and the Lord. God's working in his people. Or the straight up Billy Graham, like, won't you come, right? And people just coming out of the stands, up to the altar, up to the stage, that kind of a thing. I think there was a point in time where that had become such a norm and it had become so so um, culturally minded in the church that there was this sort of fear or this caution against it becoming emotionally manipulative, Right? We're going to do an altar call, and boys, play this song, but play it at half speed, because that's really going to be the tearjerker, right? And, and when I, as a pastor, start teach, teaching, I'm going to use a specific tone of voice, because it's really going to convict people, right? And so there's truth in that, man. We need to be cautious of that whole thing of this emotional manipulation, right? Because we need to be sincere in what we're doing and understand that it's the Lord who's working through his word being preached. That that's how people receive faith. This gift that he gives to people for the purpose of salvation. So it's not about us and our gyrations and what we can figure out to work. But it's just to make room for the Lord to do his thing. But that said, the reason why I think moving away from the altar call thing or the, or the, or the call to salvation is not particularly healthy is because we see it all through the scriptures. All throughout the scriptures, specifically in the New Testament, we see example after example of teachers and preachers calling people, those who are in need, calling them to repentance, calling them to faithfulness, to obedience, to worship, and yes, calling them to salvation. Specifically, the call to repent of your sins and believe upon Jesus or repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist did it. Mark chapter 1. He was saying, make straight the path. Make straight the way of the Lord. And he was baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins in preparation of the coming Messiah. Peter in Acts chapter 2, we've read this numerous times. They, he was preaching the gospel of Jesus, and they said, what must we do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized. Be filled with the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as we move our way through that, through that letter, he, he does the exact same thing, calling people to salvation. Now, all of those examples are good for us, but I'll just let Jesus be the one that sets the example for us, even in this practice of calling people to salvation. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus himself, at the inauguration of his ministry, says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus verbally says, hey, you, you need to repent, you need to turn away from your sin, and you need to believe in this good news. There's this old tagline that, that was supposed to somehow uh, free us up from that awkwardness of sharing Jesus with people and proclaiming the gospel in this way. It says, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. And it was supposed to be this pithy little statement that goes, hey, listen, people are going to know you're a Christian by the way that you behave. And, they're gonna, they, and, then, and then what's going to happen is that you're always going to be so joyful in the Lord that sometime somebody's going to walk up and go, why are you always so joyful in the Lord? And you get to say, well, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me talk to you about Jesus, right? Ha does that happen? Absolutely, that can happen. The world's supposed to know that we're Jesus' disciples by the way that we love each other, right? That's true. But the reality is, you know, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. That's hogwash. That's a load of baloney. Preach the gospel at all times. And as it is necessary, use words. 
We have to use words to proclaim the gospel to people. Jesus sets the example for us in that. And so here's what I'll finish with. Here's what I'll say. This statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it's a steadying statement for us. It's something that should ground us and be able to, to build confidence in us and say, hey, expect this in your faith. Expect this in your sharing of Jesus and your inviting of people to come be a part of God's church. They may think you're foolish and they may treat you that way, but to you and to me, the cross is the power of God as we are being saved through Jesus Christ. So here's the message that, that you get to hear for yourself as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's the message you get to take and share with other people that God is calling you to go to as he tells you, I have people in this city. I have people in your neighborhood. I have people in your school. I have people at your workplace that I want to save. And just like the Apostle Paul, God may say, I'm going to use you to take that message to them. So if you're broken, if they're sick, if they're dying, if, if anything is afflicting them, if they have a tummy ache, or if something is, is more tragic than that, if you or they have committed adultery, if you or they are addicted to drugs, if you're battling depression or anxiety, or if you're simply tired of life the way it is apart from Jesus. Number one, church is the right place to be. And number two, Jesus is the answer to whatever your issue is. Because whatever your issue is, the issue is you. And when you place your faith upon Jesus for salvation, when you confess and repent of your sins, believe that he gives you a new life and you sacrifice, you take up your cross and you sacrifice your own selfishness and trade serving yourself for serving Jesus, the result is, the Bible tells us, that you are filled with the Holy Ghost and he leads you as you get to become more and more like Jesus. That's the answer to all of the issues that were going on in the church of Corinth. And that's the answer for all of us who are the church here in Eugene and Springfield. Amen.